Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are continuing in our season of Lent, our second Sunday of Lent. And it's interesting the, um, the journey that we go on in, in, in this season, especially through the Gospels and through our teaching, through the lectionary passages, because the majority of these passages focus on personal encounters with Christ. They focus on things that Christ was doing in his ministry, things that he was doing as he journeyed from the transfiguration now towards Jerusalem and towards the cross and resurrection. And the majority of these stories are about personal encounter. Today, we're going to be hearing the story of Nicodemus and kind of what seems like an improbable, but hopefully a bit of a relatable faith journey that he goes upon in finding Christ. As a matter of fact, over the next four weeks, we'll be hearing stories of encounters with Jesus, with a handful of folks who, you know, in great and small ways, give us insight into the nature of the kingdom. Of course, that's what all of scripture does. It gives us insight into the nature of the kingdom. But it also puts like specifics. It really puts nuance into the various ways people respond to the invitation that Christ always provides, which is come and follow me. That's the invitation. These stories are gonna be familiar with you. Today we'll hear Nicodemus. Next week we're gonna hear the Samaritan woman at the well, one of my favorites. After that, Jesus' encounter with the man born blind and all the questions, who sinned, this man or his parents, those kind of questions. And then we'll hear the story of Lazarus and his resurrection a dear, dear friend of Jesus in this encounter. So today and over the following weeks, as we follow Jesus in his ministry and its journey to the victory over sin and death at the cross, the call is to see ourselves in these stories. That's the call. And to be honest with ourselves in the way that we might reflect these motivations that these characters are expressing that Jesus might be calling out and correcting, lovingly leading back towards truth. And as I've mentioned today, we're gonna to start with the story of Nicodemus in John chapter three. And fair warning, um, this passage today includes a verse in scripture that is likely the most well-known popular verse in scripture. We see it at Ball games, and we see it everywhere. I mean, to the point where, frankly, it's in danger of becoming an idol, this one scripture, if we don't hear it for what it's saying. But I encourage you to hear the history of this life-changing message of grace that Jesus gives us in John 3.16 in the context of Nicodemus' story. I also really considered telling this story in some fancy way, like finding some modern, <laughs> some modern rendition of the story of Nicodemus, um, but ultimately felt like that was just messing around. Like, we don't need to do that. This story is compelling and current and modern enough, and you guys are smart enough to pay attention to maybe a little bit longer passage of scripture. 
This is one of my favorites. Let's dive into John chapter 3, but before we read the word, let's pray. God of signs and wonders, we come to your word again and again, seeking understanding and the new life it offers. By the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds so that we may believe this testimony and have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our teacher and savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. John chapter 3, you're welcome to turn there along with us. It'll be on the screens for you. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. So John chapter 3. There was a named man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What does this mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus said, asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you believe me when I tell you about earthly things, if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his, only, his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. Their actions were evil. All who do evil, hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's an awful lot in that passage. Like you could preach a whole passage on that verse about Moses and the bronze serpent on the pole. 
about Jesus being lifted up, you know, kind of the parallel. There's like, we could go all over in that passage. And of course, this passage holds a very dear passage for us, John 3.16. But at the heart of what's happening in this conversation is like this real obvious ambiguity going on, this kind of confusion that's going back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus, this misunderstanding. And unraveling that misunderstanding, I think is crucial for us discerning what Jesus and what the gospel writer of John wants us to know today. But first, I think let's just start with the character of Nicodemus, because if any character of the Bible can re be regarded as like a parallel to 21st century uh, believers, church members, it's likely this religious Pharisee, Nicodemus. In many ways, we can sympathize with him because he's successful and self-confident. He plays a leadership role in his community and his church. He's spiritually open and curious, yet he's rational, you know? <laughs> he approaches Jesus directly and tries to figure out Jesus' actions and maybe even how he's socially interacting in the world. He's committed and curious enough that he makes an appointment to come see Jesus face to face. However, Nicodemus is kind of holding his cards close to his body. He's not quite ready to commit. He's not ready to go public with his interest in Jesus. So he makes his appointment late at night so that he can keep this faith that is growing within him secret, separate from the rest of his life. His imagination is caught by Jesus, yes, but he wants to compartmentalize whatever faith he has. Nicodemus is not yet ready to declare his faith in the light of day, not prepared to let it change his life. How many of us can relate to elements of that description? Maybe the rationality part, I don't know. Lots of it. Can you recognize moments in your faith journey that felt and sounded a little bit like Nicodemus's? Perhaps you too have faith in Jesus, but your faith lives mostly in unseen ways. But now back to this misunderstanding. This misunderstanding is taking place in verses three through five, where Jesus says, verily I, verily I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And how can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter the second time into the mother's womb to be born. So even for us today, this term, born again, if you've spent more than 10 minutes in the Christian church in your life, you likely have an idea of what it means to be born again, right? You know, we would say that it's a moment that a person professes personal belief in Jesus and that's kind of it. That's what it means to be born again. You profess your faith in Jesus. It is a change of mind. It's a mental renewal. It's a rebirth of heart. It's a moment that we spend in prayer and then lived out in our personal devotion. But Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into something more because it apparently appears that, G that Nicodemus is at this point. 
He's come and he's said, Jesus, we all see what you're doing and it can only be from God. He's professed faith in Christ. But Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into something more. Yes, we profess belief and we seek forgiveness from Jesus. Yes, we invite him to heal our hearts and our brokenness. But Jesus goes a step further. He wants to renew our habits and our behaviors to renew our priorities and our actions. In other words, the way we conduct ourselves in public life. Today, we hear this call, this call of Jesus to be reborn, not only in our hearts and minds, but in our bodies and in our public life. So the first step of this process, it kind of seems to be two things happening here. First is this idea of being born of the Spirit. It's the first, it's the first renewal in our faith journey because the prevenient grace of God begins working. Something starts awakening in us that makes us aware of God and his work and his move. It's amazing and it's beautiful how God seeks us out. Think of your own story. Think of your own story. Long before you attended your first worship service or heard your first sermon or read your first passage of scripture, or prayed your first prayer, God was pulling your heart towards him and leading you to a moment of encounter in which we are forever changed by the redeeming love of Jesus. Even if you grew up in the church and have been here since you were a baby, <laughs> at one point, God turned what was just happening around you that really didn't make much sense into something personal. And like Jesus, Nope, like Nicodemus, our mind is open to the truth because of this prevenient grace. The possibility that God truly is with us and that he is at work in this world and that that work might include our own hearts and our lives. God graciously meets us in our brokenness and brings healing and rebirth just as we hear described in this passage and we feel the weightlessness that comes from releasing our burdens, from having our sins forgiven and having the Holy Spirit given. So in this moment of rebirth in spirit, like Nicodemus, we profess faith in Christ and we're reborn in spirit. And honestly, once we overcome our self-reliance and our cultural baggage, this is the easy part. This is kind of the easy part. Because before too long, once this decision is made, cultural norms, pressures of family and friends, they all come rushing back in and challenging this newfound faith that we have. It tends to limit that faith into the private parts of our lives. And we might even fear what others might think or say if our life really starts changing in a, in a way based on this new faith. Our culture tends to say that faith is appropriate for family and for personal morality, but kind of inappropriate in many cases in public display. In and of itself, there's much to praise and about a faith that thrives in our private lives. It's necessary. We need to have a private faith. It's genuine, heartfelt, personal, and often deep. 
It's our core. It's what we find solace in. But the point is not that private faith is somehow faulty. The point is that there's much more that Jesus invites us into. It's no accident that Nicodemus visits Jesus at night in the dark. But Jesus wants us to meet him in the light in the town square in our waking lives. In our passage, Jesus suggests that Nicodemus's kind of faith is incomplete, that he needs to do another step. He likens this midnight encounter with Nicodemus as a child safe in the womb, still gestating, still growing. And Jesus implies that you must be born into the light, born again to declare, declare your faith in the light of day. You know, one obvious connection to this idea of born of spirit, and now we're kind of talking born of water, one obvious connection of this idea is baptism, right? It's a public way. We're baptized publicly. We're born of water. This is an obvious public way of expressing faith in Jesus. And there's something very interesting happening in this passage that kind of implies maybe Jesus means this, but maybe he means something else. The language that Jesus is using in the original here when he says born of water appears to have more to do with physical birth rather than spiritual celebration of baptism. After all, being born of spirit appears to be covering that spiritual rebirth aspect. And so the parallel being born of water in a literary sense, it might, it might mean exactly what Jesus is saying, being born of the womb. This is why many interpreters see that water birth is referring to natural and physical birth of, of, of a child, every, the birth that every person experiences. Every baby who is born naturally comes into the world, sorry for the TMI here, but through a gush of water, right? They come from the mother's womb with a gush of water. And it's plausible that, that Jesus is actually kind of talking about this idea. This idea is supported even by the next verse where Jesus says, what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit. But that puts us right back in this place, this conundrum that Nicodemus was in. How in the world can you do that? How can we re-enter the mother's womb and be born again? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Here's what theologians and scholars think Jesus might be saying. Jesus is saying that our internal faith must move into external changes. Jesus encourages that our faith must move from internal thoughts and convictions into external motivations and behaviors. This is where the true testing of the kingdom takes place. This is where the true work of the kingdom takes place. So being born from above and believing in Jesus is clearly not so much about what we do just in our private lives, our thoughts and our minds, our hearts, but also what we do in our public life. Verse 21 says, those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. 
So that's Jesus' uh, offer or invitation to Nicodemus on that rooftop. And the, the story continues. I love this. I think you're going to love this. We see, see Nicodemus a couple more times in Scripture. In John chapter 7, Jesus is preaching publicly in the temple in Jerusalem. And as happens, he's confronted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they begin quizzing and testing and asking him questions about whether he's the Messiah, trying to trick him or trap him. And as those interactions tended to go, things begin to heat up pretty quickly. Shouting and accusations and threats and seething is starting to happen. And in steps Nicodemus. John chapter 7, verse 50 says, Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal for a man to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asks. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet can come from Galilee. Nicodemus publicly stands up for Jesus in front of his peers, attempting to de-escalate this scene that's unfolding. It might not seem like much, you know, that's it, that's it, that's all we know. It might not seem like much, but I think for Nicodemus, it was the dam breaking. I think it was the thing that released the work of the Holy Spirit that had begun in him into his public life. We do see Nicodemus one more time at the end of John in, verse nine, in chapter 19. And this is after Jesus' crucifixion. It says, after Joseph of Ar afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. So here in the full light of day, Nicodemus is enacting a life of devotion, worship, and really extravagance to Jesus. It seems that Nicodemus has come full circle from ashamed, not ready for his faith to be known in the world, to this moment where he demonstrates lavish abandon, 75 pounds of rare, expensive spices for the burial of his body. Much more than was needed. This was, a, this was an act of extravagance, and it would have been recognized as such. It was a sacrifice that Nicodemus was honored to make. So clearly, John and the other writers of Scripture know that believing and doing are inseparable. You're probably recognizing or even in your mind thinking of the parts of scripture that say things like faith without works is dead, you know, kind of that stuff. We know that our faith is two-sided. It's embodied and it's personal. 
And Jesus is reminding us that it's not enough to just feel sympathetically aligned to the kingdom and its priorities and its work. He's saying that our lives, our activities, our behaviors, our choices, our spending, our working, all of it should be changed and shaped by our beliefs. Our faith should move from private thought to public good. So that's the call for us today, to be born into this light to which we've been called. So for you, what does that mean? What ideas are you having? What things are germinating in your heart? For some of you, the perfect first step might be to be born again of water, the way it's commonly known and understood. Baptism. We're preparing for an exciting celebration on Easter where we will have baptisms. We've had some of you already contact us, and we're going to be doing baptisms that day. If you've already talked to myself or Pastor Grace, awesome. But if at this very moment, this idea of baptism is starting to make your palms sweaty and you're starting to wonder, why am I feeling this way? Maybe this is your day. (laughs) We'd love to talk to you. Come speak with myself or Pastor Grace. We'd love to talk about that. And parents, perhaps you would like to ask about baptism for your kids, your children. We'd love to have that conversation. Pastor Grace has some amazing material to help you kind of walk through that decision with your kids to consider whether this might be the right time. So baptism, that might be your first step of being born again of water and spirit. But maybe your baptism has been done, but you're recognizing that the majority of your faith kind of lives internally. It kind of rests in a nice, safe, easy place. I'd encourage you to ask Jesus to gently encourage you how you might begin to live your faith in a bit more active and public ways. Um, Hopefully not like as Bible-thumping, track-waving, corner prophets and preachers. I mean, I just watched last night with Melissa, Jesus Revolution, that movie that's out. And it's interesting to see how the passing out of tracks in that particular cultural moment was the right thing to do. It was cool. It's cool to see that. But our culture is different. And that's worth asking the question, how do I lovingly love my culture? How do I do this thing? And that's a question that Jesus wants to interact with you on. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. I love that. Jesus is faithful to put the details of your public faith, your public life with him when you ask for discernment and ways that you can do that. But I think there's one more invitation here. And honestly, this is the one that kind of hit me. This is the thing that really I thought, wow. Maybe that's me. For some of you, your public proclamation of the birth of new life in Jesus might be best articulated by what you choose to stop doing. Our culture has one speed. It's flat out 
You know, even when the amplifiers only go to 10, we want to turn to them to 11, right? But Matthew chapter 11, one of these famous invitations of Jesus, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The public and private life that Jesus invites us into is easy. You might be thinking it doesn't feel easy. <laughs> but there's no trick in this passage. There's no like theological hoops that we have to go through to try to justify what Jesus is saying. He really is saying what he's saying. Jesus' way of interpreting scripture and interpreting the way of life in the kingdom is easy. He wants us to partner with him to go along this work. I mean, the use of the, a yoke in this description is twofold. One, of course, it obviously implies the yoke that the oxen used in plowing the fields. And when Jesus is on the other side, it makes the burden feel light for the oxen paired with it. But yoke was also this term that was used for the way the rabbi interpreted the scripture. So in other words, when I hear this passage, I think it means this. That's the rabbi's yoke. When the scripture tells us to do this action, this is one way it could be happening in your life. That's a rabbi's yoke. And Jesus' yoke is easy. For many of us, perhaps the best way for your life to be reborn of water, to be brought into the light, to be something that people notice, is by doing less, taking less action. Perhaps the most countercultural thing that you could do in your faith is to start removing things from your calendar. For your friends or your family, this might be the biggest sign that something is different in you. The loudest way that you can profess that Jesus' work is to simply slow down once in a while. Few of us operate in our lives with margin. You know, our odometer is redlining the whole time, the majority of the time. And it's not sustainable. Your engine's going to blow. And I don't think that I'm being selfish in saying that as you're looking for what to prune, if the first thing to come off the calendar is coming here on Sunday, <laughs> is attending your life group, perhaps coming to game night, our special services, if that's the only thing to come out of your calendar, then I don't know. I can be selfish to say that, right? <laughs> We'd love to have you here. But it's not only about being here. It's about what God is asking you to do. We intentionally try not to book up your weeks in the calendar. But where else might you be living without margin? If we could hear that 
passage from Matthew 11 one more time, but this time from the message paraphrase. I love this. I mean, if we just read this and sit down, I think we're good. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It's beautiful. Jesus knows that neither Nicodemus nor you or I can do this on our own. We just can't work harder and make this happen. This is something, a means and an act of grace that God does in our lives. It's God who gives us rebirth of spirit and it's God who gives us rebirth of water. Rebirth is God's gift to give and his work to accomplish. And it's in our joining with him are taking upon us his yoke that we experience this, this life. So today in your mind, today in your spirit, today in your heart, today in your behaviors, your priorities, in your bodies, may we come to Jesus and learn the unforced rhythms of grace that he offers us. As we close in prayer, as we gather here at the table, and as we enter into our time of intercessory prayers over the next few moments, I invite you to kind of be holding those questions in hand. The question of, Jesus, what would you have me begin doing in order to better love you and others publicly? But equally so, you might be holding that question and saying, Jesus, what would you have me stop doing in order to love you and others more faithfully in my public and private life? Let us pray. Lord, we pray those exact words. Jesus, what would you have us do in order to begin loving you and loving others better in our public lives? Jesus, what might we need to stop doing in order to love you and to love others more effectively in our private and public lives? God, we confess that like Nicodemus, we are afraid, we're timid. We like to be safe and sometimes a life a public devotion to the kingdom feels unsafe. But God, as you encourage us, as you encourage us, Lord, as we team ourselves alongside of you, taking upon ourselves your light and easy yoke, may we have courage. May we have hope and boldness knowing that you are right beside us. And God, we recognize that it's only through your followers, your believers, taking upon themselves your yoke and your burden that the work of the kingdom is accomplished. That you've chosen, Lord, in 
sometimes, like, mysteriously and oddly, you've chosen for the, your work, the majority of your work, to happen through our participation with it. God, we thank you for your prevenient grace that goes ahead and prepares hearts and minds to meet you. But God, uh, it's an awesome responsibility to know that you've given us divine appointments through which we can enact this work of the kingdom. God, for each of us today, maybe with a little trepidation, we pray that you would give us each an assignment this week, that you would give us an opportunity, and that when that opportunity is unfolding right before us, that your spirit would so touch our hearts and enliven our convictions that, God, we encounter the work of your kingdom through a friend, through a gesture, through a moment, through an act of compassion, an act of generosity, an act of mercy, an act of forgiveness, whatever it is. We ask that you would lead us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that you have enabled us to be born again of spirit and of water. Amen.